electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. It's Fed Day again. What Wall Street is watching, the Fed's next rate decision, plus more fallout from the regional bank crisis. California Congressman Ro Khanna. The question this country has to ask is, do we want to be like Canada and France and have three or four banks? Or do we want to have a bank in Youngstown? Do we want to have a bank in Anderson, Indiana? They're going to be obviously a little more risky. Slowing the progression of Alzheimer's, the big announcement from Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks. Almost half have no signs of decay after one year, and half the patients were also off the drug at one year. That's another feature of this drug is it's a treat for a short period of time. And the other stories that got us squawking today, late night shows gone dark, plus AI and human learning. Wait a second. You used ChatGPT for this, didn't you? It is Wednesday, May 3rd. Did I mention it was Fed Day? Love those guys. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here we go. As Joe said, Fed Day. And what were you saying, Joe? Saying if it's 500 basis points and they do it... Usually in quarter points, sometimes in half. How many times have we done this? Now, probably 16. I was going to say, why didn't you just do five? 500. All one shot. Just do it. what would have happened? I know. And then I thought, no, we milk it. And it's better if they should do 12 and a half. That way we would have had 50 of these days where we can say, hey, you got to watch CNBC because in eight hours. It, it's, this one does feel pretty important. It is, does feel important because there might be a, there might be a yeah. one and done comment. Or maybe not one and or done, maybe but not. one pause. Or maybe not. One and pause. Or maybe a pause. And let's we're see gonna, what We're going to look around. Maybe, or, you know, there's an outside chance they could do nothing and give a very hawkish out, outlook and say, look, we might do something down the road. We're not pausing yet. We're going to keep rates longer for, for higher. Right, but I think if they don't raise, chance. it's not actually going to be considered positive. I think it actually, that would actually be considered yes, negative. From what point. Barry Knapp said, that right. it means the Fed is worried it can, it can break something, right. which means something is imminently is breakable. breakable. But Barry didn't think that that was a good enough reason. No, to, he didn't. To raise rates, because he's more worried about the risk. And there are other people weighing in, including former Dallas Fed President Kaplan, just saying overnight that he thinks that we're in the early stages of the chaos of, of the banking sector, not uh, maybe the second or third inning, not the seventh by, by any stretch, because he's worried about what happens next with the credit issues. Right. Do, do the people that right now are scouring the ranks of the regionals for problems, are they good people? Or are we happy we have them? Very. Uh, I think we are. They're short sellers, many of them, which, which get a bad name. But there are people, especially, did you see the regional banks yesterday? Not regional good. banks yesterday. Not good. First, it's at, it looks the like that one. regional banks ETF, the spider regional banks new ETF, low. down more than 6%. Yeah. Uh, and you know people yeah. are looking. They're, Lowest they're levels just, we've seen regional banks right. since 2020. Trying to find the next one. And then it can be self-fulfilling. This is awesome uh, coming up. Um, and it, it, it has, we talked to David Ricks just a couple of days ago when Eli Lilly reported results. 
Uh, but this is positive results about a, a phase three study of that Alzheimer's drug, denonimab, which we talked about with uh, David last time he was on. And the study showed that the drug significantly slowed cognitive and functional decline in people with early symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. The drug does target the amyloid plaque uh, in the brain, which we still don't have a, a, a total understanding of what's going on. But when you do uh, try to get rid of some of the, the buildup, some of the plaque buildup, you do see results like this that are statistically significant. Nearly half of the, uh, the participants showed no clinical progression of the disease after one year. Based on the results, Eli Lilly is going to seek regulatory approval for the drug as soon as possible. There's another drug uh, made by a competitor uh, that this has superior um, binding on the amyloid plaque to the other. It seems to be, have a better um, outcome. It is in a head-to-head -head clinical trial. So uh, that is a, it's a big societal problem. Uh, it's been a tough one to try to figure out. And, and you, you know, as we say again and again, causation is not correlation. So people with Alzheimer's have these plaques. We didn't know whether you get Alzheimer's and then you get the plaque buildup, or you get the plaque buildup and then you get Alzheimer's. But it's right. looking more and more likely uh, that there is some, some uh, causative effect of this beta amyloid protein, which builds up in, in elderly, not even always elderly people, which is uh, sometimes you, you see those uh, anecdotes where people are 50 years old and get horrible Alzheimer's. What's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? It, 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 even when they say, um, Alzheimer's, they call it a heterogeneous right. um, diagnosis because it includes so many different things. Not necessarily Parkinson's, but certainly dementia, premature senility, Alzheimer's. I think it's sort of a wide, you know, covers a wide swath of, uh, of things. But um, hopefully, this would, be, this would be good. It'd be great. Big news in TV land because major late night shows, including NBC's Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live and CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. They went dark yesterday. This after the union representing movie and TV writers went on strike. Members of the Writers Guild of America picketed outside entertainment companies in L.A. and New York. Both sides saying no future talks are currently scheduled. So we said yesterday that this could be a long and protracted battle and um, it, it feels that way already. Most of these guys got their material from directly from the White House. That's the for, for the the aha uh -huh. or the DNC. Where'd you get your material? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Writers are on strike. Oh, oh couldn't tell. Well, the speaker's messaging me. Uh, right, yeah. no, right, right. Right. The CEO of Chegg reacting to the plunge in the company's stock price yesterday. That stock was down by about fifty percent. In an interview with John Ford, Dan Rosenzweig talked about the rise of the adoption of AI by students, and that took a toll on the company's homework help business. I think this is extraordinarily overblown, and I don't normally say that. I don't really talk about the stock price much, but this is just what people need to understand is students can't be wrong when they do homework or when they learn things. ChatGPT is often wrong, and it's not going to be right anytime soon. Check plans to launch its own AI platform this month, powered by GPT-4. It will be trained on Chegg's trove of academic data. But the question around this, the reason so many people are wondering, is are there other stocks that could get chopped in half by the rise of AI? This is a pretty unique situation. Um, students right. stopped paying because it's a subscription service. If you, pro if, you, if you go on to Chegg to get help with your homework, right. you can get it for free from ChatGPT. Or you pay 21 bucks for ChatGPT-4. It'll get you close. Yeah.
It'll get you. The whole, my hope is that people aren't going to plagiarize it for you. That's well, the that's problem. The, that's the issue. I, I have seen some stuff that you, yep. can, you can tell. I mean, if it, once you start reading a lot of the chat GPT stuff, you can tell what's been written. I think AI. that's true of three, of ChatGPT three and maybe 3.5. I think once you get to four. Speaking from somebody who yeah. had an essay sent to me. Oh, really? By one of our kids. Okay. Like, Wait a second. You used ChatGPT for this, didn't you? Like, well, so this, if you know the voice I, of the author, you Remember when I said that the prompts say. matter? Yeah. And that, like, that prompting is actually going to be like a, a skill? The but prompts, I think it's also if you know somebody's voice. But the like, prompt, I know what no, but you right. can get it to actually do your voice if you know how to do the prompting. That's what I'm saying. It, like, there's a thing to the whole thing. Knowing stuff is still going to matter, at least for a, some amount of time. Yeah. You might need to do like a deal book column without telling anyone and see if anyone notices. <laughs> I, I have played around with it just to see. <laughs> just, I've just, just to see if I could, you know, if we could get it close. What if they like it more? People might. People might. I just, I don't know. Check is a billion dollar. I've never mentioned a billion dollar company more times in the last two days. No, but first, just because of the AI. AI. It's the AI. But it's a a small cap went to a micro cap. So who's Rosenberg? I guess anything he did. No, no, Dan's a big deal. We're like interested in him. He's been been around for a really long time. Big deal in Silicon Valley. But uh, it's not very widely held. And I mean, it couldn't be a billion dollar market cap. Check has a huge impact in the education market. Meaning, if you talk to kids who are in school, they know what Check is. It's like a thing. Up next on Squawk Pod, fallout from the first Republic Bank failure, the second largest in history, the next chapter with Silicon Valley Representative Ro Khanna. I hope that the the worst is over, but until we guarantee depositors or have something to do uh, that assures depositors in regional banks that they're going to be safe, I think these crises could keep coming up. We'll be right back. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Stand by, Joe. His mic, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Join us now to talk banking turmoil, D.C. debt, uh, limit standoff, uh, and more. Let's bring in Congressman Ro Khanna uh, of California, whose district is located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Thanks for joining us. We, uh, we have nothing to announce today, the two of us. Do we, no, at this well, point, the Warriors are still going to. That's win. right. But no, I have had someone tell me Anthony Davis is going to be a big problem. He had a great game. You. He had a great game. He's a lot of great. He's he might be. He may be. Oh, you saw the Warriors. They overcame the Kings. You know, seven I saw games. That. Steph, I saw that. Steph, fifty points. Um, 
Here's where we're going to, oh, but like I said, we're not announcing anything about Joe Rowe or Rojo at this point. Um, we're not in yet. We're I got not, I gotta pass the interview. You got to see how far, you know, I, can you right, work with me? This is a test for you. This is a job interview to see if you're going to be on the ticket uh, with me. Here's what, uh, let's talk about the bank. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you'll see where I'm going with this. This is some serious stuff ha happening in the banking industry. Do you attribute any of what's happening to inflation, which was engendered by all this spending and 32 trillion in debt? Because that's a lot of people think that's where inflation, the root causes. I mean, there was a supply chain. There are a lot of reasons for, for what we're seeing right now, the reopening. But do you attribute it? And if so, maybe we need to do something about the debt during these talks. Well, look, I mean, obviously the banking crisis in part is related to inflation because the rates went up. Because the Fed had to go up 500 basis points. And individuals in these banks are saying, oh, I can get 5% in a money market account, so they're moving it. Uh, and uh, these banks, some of them didn't hedge against the long-term bonds. But here, here's the situation with the regional banks, really simply. Look, if you're in the big four banks, you know though, that money is safe. If you're in one of these regional banks, you're not that sure. And the question this country has to ask is, do we want to be like Canada and France and have three or four banks? Or do we want to have a bank in Youngstown? Do we want to have a bank in Anderson, Indiana? They're going to be obviously a little more risky because they can't diversify. They have to lend to the regional economy. I think it's a good thing we should have those regional banks. And that's why I've said that we need to cover the we need to guarantee deposits in uh, business accounts across the country and charge a small fee for that. We get a lot of, of I, I guess we have to ask you, so you, it doesn't look like good timing to me with your First Republic. I guess you have a blind trust or something that, that someone else handles for you that when First Republic was already down 80%, yeah, it, it was sold. So, so can you respond to that? Because people say, ask Rokana about his, of course, his of course. trading. Well, so it's not my money, it's my wife's money. It's in a blind trust, it's, it's diversified. And they had some sales, which was after the stock was already 80% down, and it was at a loss. Do you think at this point, from what you can tell, that this is over? This is, we were talking basketball, let's talk baseball. What inning are we in? Is it a doubleheader? Are we in the eighth inning of this crisis? Are we in the second inning? What, what do you think? Is there more to come with all this duration risk? I, I hope that the, the worst is over, but until we guarantee depositors or have something to do uh, that assures depositors in regional banks that they're going to be safe, I think these crises could keep coming up. And even the FDIC said that yesterday. They said, we've got to reform it. You've got all these deposit accounts over 250000 right. What do you do? Well, my, my view is you say any account over 250000 we will guarantee, but we're going to charge you a small fee on it, 0.05%, 0.1%, and that fee then goes to the FDIC, and they use that to insure right. these. Is that enough? If you, if you were to put a fee like that on it, is it enough? Because the FDIC already is below what they are required to be holding in terms of capital. They're supposed to have something like 1.35% of all assets that they cover, it, and as of the end of the year, they only had 1.27%. Now, that's a function of how many, how, how huge deposits have become over the pandemic. But if you were actually to put those same standards on, on big accounts like that, I'm, I'm not sure that that level of a fee would actually raise enough because that's just covering up to 250000 If you're actually talking about all deposits, trillions and trillions of dollars, um, I don't know that that's even enough to meet up to the FDI standards that, by the way, were put there post Dodd-Frank. So there's about 10 trillion that's insured. There's about 8 trillion that is uninsured. 
and a 0.1, 0 0.05% fee on 8 right. trillion would be quite a lot. And the risk it's of a bank. 1.35%. But, but, but we, I, you know, we can figure out what the exact fee will be. The point is, if you are in a bank and you have that money there, you should pay something. Now, here's what people say they say if you guarantee all the deposits, you're going to take uh, moral hazard because these banks are uh, going to take uh, more risk. The reality is, though, the shareholders still get wiped out. So the bank still isn't going to get wiped out. Didn't now, stop any of these banks that we've seen to date, which you know, did, it seemed like they were reasonable banks until very recently. Maybe the regulators weren't looking as closely as they should have in a, in a rising rate environment. Yeah, but here, here's the philosophical question. Look, the bank of Youngstown is never going to be as safe as J.P. Morgan. I mean, they're not going to have the same risk assessment. They can't diversify in the same way. But do we want a thousand banks in America? I say yes. And I say yes. There's a slight higher risk if you have a thousand right. banks than if you but have three see, you banks. You just said something which to me is, is sort of the, the beginning and end of the discussion, which is as long as you believe that the Youngstown Bank is not as safe as J.P. Morgan, why would you bank there? I mean, under, under, under what content, right? In, unless, unless they're going to have higher, I mean, because there's two things. They're going to give you a higher rate, better rate, and how are they going to give you a better rate and pay for this insurance at the same time? I mean, that's the other piece of it, which is J.P. Morgan can actually afford to pay the insurance component. Whereas, whereas actually, well, if you're a small bank, it makes it so much harder. Well, right now, though, J.P. Morgan has an unfair advantage because... But they're be always going to. Well, because they, have the the because they have the guarantee. So they can get away paying almost 0% interest while they're getting 5% at the Fed. If you guaranteed those the local banks, guarantee because they're too big to fail, you mean? Right. right. They have a, I mean, if you guaranteed the local banks, at least they'd be on an, on a level playing field, and then maybe someone other than J.P. Morgan would want to buy them because they know it's a safe investment. But yes, it's higher risk. I mean, I think we should be honest that having a thousand banks is probably a little bit higher risk than having three banks. But do you want? I mean, we already have. I, just yesterday, I read in North Carolina there was a paper mill that shut down in this town. 4,000 people uh, in that town. Guess how many folks work at that paper mill? 900. That's wiping out the town. And you're telling me at, at a time where we've got a small towns sort of having manufacturing leaving, uh, resilience leaving, that we want to just get rid of the regional banks? I mean, it would be catastrophic, I think, in this country. And that's why right. I think it's worth it. Well, this is a big day because you're in studio. They told me you have a minute left, which, <laughs> which was very disappointing to me. The reason I uh, started with, with whether the debt can, can cause problems is because we have a debt ceiling limit coming up, uh, and it's, it's a big debate. We're at $32 trillion. I think unequivocally that there is a debt issue, and that has something to do with the super in in terms of inflation and everything else. I was watching Senate leadership yesterday, and John Thune pointed out, Senator Thune pointed out, eight out of the last 11 times we've raised the debt ceiling, there have been fiscal and budgetary talks coinciding with that. And there have been initiatives, whether it was one party or the other that wanted to do something it was agreed upon in negotiations at this point. There is a bill from the House right now, it's being ignored, and Senator Schumer is not bringing anything to the floor. He has to raise the demo. He needs 60, he doesn't have 60. The president has got to, to engage here. Not afterwards, not, not taking this off the, uh, I, I, the only reason he's not, in your view, it, do you agree, is because he wants to pin it on the GOP, on Republicans. Oh look, the president, 
knows that we can't default. That would be catastrophic at a time for the economy. He's called all four leaders in to meet with him. Still says he won't talk about it in, in, at the same time as the debt ceiling increase. Though. Here's all we're saying. Just pay, your, pay the bills. That, that's we all will. We but what, what is, would it kill you to just do something, to do the, the COVID, uh, let, let some of the stuff that's unspent, use that to reduce the debt? Negotiate. Both sides get something that they want, but but uh, just do something about it. Why would that kill the president to talk about negotiation? After we pay the debt, I'm open to I, We have to talk about lowering the deficit. We do. Look, Bill Clinton left with debt budget surpluses. But we're not getting anywhere, bro. What if <laughs> they, we're, we're, the brinkmanship is taking us towards this precipice? And as long as he's saying this, he's backing McCarthy into a, a place where he's not going to do a, a clean debt. I mean, he's already got something on the table that he passed. He was able to but pass. But you know, those were huge cuts on veterans. So, so have on the, veterans okay, on, have the on, Senate. On K through 12. So let's, let's talk about what, what, what you keep in it and what you don't with negotiations with the Senate and with the president. Presidents call them in. They're, okay. they're going to have a conversation. But, but look, let's, most of the debt has been accumulated after Bill Clinton because of the Trump tax cuts, Bush tax cuts, now overseas we're, okay. wars. Now we're back. We spent a lot. In the, everybody's to blame. The last two years have not been our, our finest two years in terms of, of uh, fiscal responsibility. Look, did, whether we overspend or not, what about this point? We as a nation, both under Trump and Biden, had the best response to COVID in the world. Okay. Now, when people say government doesn't work, now we spent $5 trillion and we had low unemployment rate, we got the vaccines done, and frankly, it's one moment actually that everyone should get some credit. Right. Whether we overshot, it was a response but to the, a crisis. But the House bill only takes us back to 2022 spending. It's, it's a 1% cut, well, it's not. But it, with inflation. Okay. You can't say we've got, you can't have McCarthy out there saying we've got inflation, 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 and then said let's have 2020 levels for veterans on health care. Bro, right. <laughs> so we had more guys, than a minute. Are you guys really on the same ticket? Yeah. Don't you see how it's going to work? Don't you see how it's going to work? <laughs> Not really. He well, gets to call should. the shots, huh? Yeah. I just, I, I, it's it's going to be Joe Rowe. <laughs> I think it's, no, I think, but I didn't want it to be Joe Rowe because I don't want to work that hard. I, want to, I think the vice president can sort of coach. I'll come up with all my ideas. You come then, up with and it. And then you can just do the just, line. But I have to sign know, off on yeah, it. Yeah, i got to convince you what's yeah. spending. Oh, all right, that's it. not happening. Oh, oh. <laughs> my goodness. Cheese will be next. Coming up, great news from Eli Lilly, an experimental Alzheimer's drug showing progress in slowing the disease. It's got a complicated name. Denonimab. Denonimab. Yeah. Do, 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 do. That's what I was thinking, too. But high hopes. Then I can say it. Denonimab. Eli Lilly's CEO, David Ricks, joins us next. Beta amyloid removal is a key to slow down this disease. It's not the only thing to do, but we have a new tool today. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Joe. Eli Lilly announcing positive results from its phase three study of its early Alzheimer's treatment, donan- donanamab, donanamab. 
whenever we do monoclonal antibodies, it's almost impossible to pronounce these ridiculous, these crazy things. The study found that nearly half of the participants showed no clinical progression of the disease after one year. Uh, joining us now is David Ricks, Eli Lilly, Chair and CEO. Just as an aside, uh, you're almost at, at J&J now, uh, David. You're very close. You, you're close to $400 billion because uh, you closed at, uh, the stock closed at 383 up 5% a day. I think J&J is about 430. So you're solidly the second biggest uh, pharmaceutical company in the world. Uh, quite staggering. Let's talk about the, the news today with, uh, with Alzheimer's and what it actually means, proof of concept. 47% of the participants on this drug in a phase three trial had no clinical progression at one year. Sounds great, but the placebo was 29%. So that's much better than, than people that weren't treated. There's definitely signs of efficacy, and this has been one of the hardest things to tackle. But do we know now that attacking beta amyloid in these plaques, is that the mechanism to cure Alzheimer's, or it's just progress at this point? Joe, thanks for having me on. It's a super exciting day for our scientists, but more importantly for the patients we've been working for for over 30 years in investing in this area. To answer your question, um, it's not a cure, but it is a significant step forward today with Denonumab's um, uh, efficacy results, which, which significantly slows the disease down in our study. And um, you mentioned that almost half have no signs of slowing or no signs of um, decay after one year. And half the patients were also off the drug at one year. That's another feature of this drug is it's a treat for a short period of time, get the benefit for a longer period of time. It's a, it's a big step forward. And I think um, you mentioned proof of concept. This is not proof of concept. It's proof. Uh, we had a proof of concept study uh, two and a half years ago. This replicates it with really incredibly strong statistical significance. Uh, so strong we put them in our press release because I know it's been an area of controversy. Beta amyloid removal is a key to slow down this disease. It's not the only thing to do, but we have a new tool today. And we're gonna rush it to the FDA and hopefully get full approval by the end of the year. There's a competing uh, monoclonal, and this works better, uh, obviously, so this is really, this is good for you. But if your monoclonal can work better than this other one, I'm just wondering, is there a, a, another next stage monoclonal that will bind even more tightly to amyloid, uh, to beta amyloid, and, and work even better? Or is there something else going on, some other mechanism we're gonna have to address? We think both. We've got another molecule behind this one that works even faster um, and uh, removes more plaque than this, it's being studied in phase three right now. So we have a follow-on to our own product. Um, it's got an even uh, harder to say name, uh, Remturnatug. Um, but, but we also think two other things, Joe, as we've studied this disease probably more than anyone, um, that earlier is better for amyloid. So uh, donotumab is also being studied in a pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's population or people who have the underlying um, plaque accumulation, but no symptoms yet, a, kind of a primary prevention uh, study that's called Trailblazer 3. We're a few years out from those results, but um, that we think will be key. In our study, the earlier in the disease you, you, you receive the drug, the, the better you do. And so uh, it just uh, is, an, by extension, pre-symptoms might be uh, having a bigger impact with this amyloid mechanism. I, I, I hate to be so ghost to talk pricing, but given the, the CMS and Medicare and everything else and the, and the bad experience with, with not covering this, I'm not really sure, uh, not this one, but uh, another Alzheimer's treatment, what, what does the government want? It, what, what, what's, 
<clears throat> what's at play here? It's obviously a debilitating disease that the clinical costs can just be exorbitant for families, for, <clears throat> for whomever. It seems like it would be a slam dunk for Medicare to cover something that, that is such a big societal problem. What will you charge for this eventually? And, and do you think that the government and Medicare uh, can be uh, persuaded finally to, to reimburse these drugs? Well, we certainly hope so. I'm pretty confused about what they're doing right now myself. Um, as you point out, uh, the cost of late-stage Alzheimer treatment can be, you know, $70,000, $100,000 a year in clinical costs. So slowing that down is good for the health care uh, budget, uh, but even in human terms as well. I mean, restoring uh, or, or, or uh, preventing memory loss and having self-care and, and having people be able to live independently longer seems like a pretty good goal for people who paid into Medicare all their life and with the hope that if they got sick, they would get the treatments they need. Only in Alzheimer's uh, right now is uh, CMS denying treatments. There's no other disease that that's true. We're working on pricing. Yeah, I can say here, you know, it's going to be in the range of other therapies like this. It's not going to be out of range. Um, they need to change their position. That's the bottom line. And this data today is compelling evidence. They've asked for compelling evidence. This, that's what this study is. So that's what the... the uh that would be their excuse in the past, I guess, that, yeah. that there's not enough proof that you pay all this money and it might not even work. So, so you show them this and you're, uh, you're optimistic that that could change uh, the CMS's stance? Well, I certainly hope so. For, you know, speaking as someone who's had members of my family with Alzheimer's and knowing lots of families who are in this condition of, of watching their, their parents uh, decay, uh, why not? I, I don't understand it at all. Now, of course, there has been controversy about amyloid removal and whether that does any good. And as you know, even from our own studies, we've had failures and missed the mark, uh, but we've had to improve the drugs and improve how we study the drugs. That's how science works. And here today with Denonimab, I mean, it really is a step change in both confidence that this mechanism does something and the magnitude uh, of its benefits. Early, uh, do we have a genetic test? Is it, is it a simple uh, marker for, for someone who's, who's going to develop Alzheimer's? Because you said it'd be, it would be very helpful to start even earlier. So why don't you combine, do some research there and find out when people are in their 30s and 40s whether they have a predisposition to Alzheimer's and, and start it then. You doing that? Well, we, we've been trailblazing there as well. We have a pretty big diagnostics effort and most of the diagnostics used to study Alzheimer's are from Lilly. Um, we have PET scanning now. That's what's in this study, looking for amyloid and tau. Yeah. That can be expensive and it take, you have to go to the hospital to get that done. But our scientists have also developed recently a blood-based biomarker that detects both tau and amyloid. We're using that in the, in the, the preclinical Alzheimer's study I mentioned earlier, the prevention study. And that's a simple blood test, like, you know, to measure your cholesterol or any other blood test. That'll be cheap and, and readily available. Um, so we've developed that as well. And there is a genetic subtype that's more at risk, and people can find that out already today. So those tools are coming, yeah. The blood test is widely available now, or it will be? It's not. We're hoping to get that uh, about the time we launch uh, Donunumab, um, get that available in the U.S. broadly. It's a clinical research tool now. Um, we, there's different steps in the FDA process for these kinds of tests, but we'll make that available hopefully early next year. Great, David. Thanks. Good. Uh, wow, we we got to stop meeting like this. So when, when do you report it's, earnings? Was, was that week. last week? When, yeah. All right. May yeah. I, I think I'm free next week, Joe, if you are. <laughs> All right. Good. We got a spot for you. Thank okay. you. Take care. Didn't they say not even God could 
sink the Titanic. I think someone actually said that, the builder. Well, because you had to. So you knew that was happening. You had to have 12 of the 14 compartments flood before right. it would go down. But I think they made some. And only. <laughs> I mean, it, way, when you say that, you know it's just a matter of time. Yeah. By the way, did you know the only reason that happened is because they saw the iceberg at the last minute and turned? If they had hit it head on, they probably would have been okay. Because they turned, ripped the whole side, and right. 11 or 12 of the compartments actually did. It's a, bad, it's a bad thing when two days in a row we've talked about the Titanic. I'm not sure what that is. In, in you keep bringing it up, so it's I don't know. We're obsessed with the Titanic. Trying to help you with TVTF, too. And that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Denominab. Denonimab. It's the N and then the M. Denonimab. Tune in tomorrow. After the latest expected rate hike from the Federal Reserve, we'll have the analysis that you need for what this policy means for the broader economy. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan. Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod to get the best of our show. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 